In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king, that, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except God's, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. Please be seated. It is good to be back in the book of Daniel. I hope all of you are as encouraged and edified by our church making our way through four different books of the Bible simultaneously. Um, uh, I know I have been blessed by the breadth of scripture that is getting exposited, and I hope um, you're able to connect and remember where we're at. We'll do a little bit of review here and make our way through more of this interpretation or the sequence between Nebuchadnezzar and his council. Um, but before we do that, let's go back to the Lord in prayer and pray that the Lord will open up our hearts to receive the word that he has for us today. God, I thank you for this responsibility and privilege that I have here today to open up your perfect and holy word and present it before your sheep, before your people, Lord. We pray that you will use your Holy Spirit to guide not just the words that are said, Lord, but the application and the extent to which we become more like Christ because of what we've heard today and because of the work being done by the Holy Spirit in us. May you be glorified in your service today. Amen. So last time we were in the book of Daniel, uh, we got through up Daniel 2 up through verse 4, and we saw how um, the transition from Hebrew to Aramaic 
pointed us to an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom. Uh, and I, I encouraged you to see the word forever differently than you've seen it before. And hopefully we'll ever, you won't be able to see it any other way other than thinking of Christ ruling his eternal kingdom forever. And um, from there, from that transition or from this transition from Hebrew to Aramaic, we are now progressing in Aramaic onwards. And we're going to jump back into this scene from this phrase, from this um, request of the Chaldeans, of this council, this council of wickedness, to have this interpretation given to, or the dream given to them so that they might interpret. Uh, as you might remember, this council who is here, we, they've been given the moniker Chaldeans. But really, as was read by our brother Mark, um, in I believe it's verse 2 um, or verse 3 there, uh, we see that the, uh, all the group of this council are laid out. We have sorcerers, magicians, um, enchanters. We have um, Chaldeans as well. And they all have different ways of trying to use spiritual power to be able to um, conduct things on earth, conduct powerful things on earth, whether it is divination and trying to understand things from the spiritual realm, or if it's um, things like being able to perform what would be their example of miracles. Um, And we've seen behind these men, and we've been taught by our brother Nick through the book of Exodus, there are real spiritual powers behind the darkness that these men try to um, toy with, the the darkness that these men are trying to to um, unleash, to be able to conduct this interpretation. There are real powers. Um, In fact, if you uh, remember, Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, what we don't know, as opposed to what, what is, I think, explicitly clear in the recounting of the magicians of Pharaoh's court, what we don't know for sure is if they, these men are actually successful at manifesting these spiritual um, beings. But the reality is that the, the spiritual forces they're trying to mess around with are real and are very much present um, in, in places of wickedness, um, and Babylon being a mecca for this right now. Uh, at this point in time. So as we jump back into to verse 4 and we continue on and they request their dream, if you remember, the dream that's being requested, Nebuchadnezzar, the wording for it in, in Hebrew in verse 1 um, for Nebuchadnezzar talking about his dream, it actually says he dreamed dreams and it does not mean um, that he dreamt many dreams or multiple dreams. Instead, we actually see the same language used in Hebrew referring to Ezekiel's visions and it's to mean, uh, it's better interpreted or understood as a long, in-depth, very detailed dream. So it's clearly left an impression on Nebuchadnezzar to the point in which he cannot sleep. And this dream is, is detailed um, and, and clearly remembered by Nebuchadnezzar. So the, the Chaldeans inquire to this dream in verse 4, hey, tell us the dream so that we might interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar knows the charlatans in front of him, he, decide, he says, no, the way I'm going to know whether or not you are prepared or capable or qualified to interpret this dream is for you to tell me what my dream was in the first place. He has good reason to, to question this lot, um, a very good reason to question this lot, um, and yet what, what he's asking on its surface might seem rather unreasonable to someone who's a counselor. 
But that's what these men are here to do. These men are here to work divine powers. They are not just um, a cabinet that we might think of today who use academia and knowledge and experience to be able to provide some insight. There might be some of that in particular from the Chaldeans of this group. Um, but instead, they're here to use divine powers. And, um, and the, king, uh, the king puts this in front of them. Now, the king clearly, because of the detail of this dream, is not forgetting his own dream. It is a specific test. Um, and look with me. We're going to make our way through a lot of this passage today. We're going to move somewhat quickly, and then we're going to spend some significant time in verses 10 and 11. But look with me at verse 5 of Daniel 2. This is the king's response to the Chaldeans, or this uh, group, this council, asking for the dream. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Well, we won't get fully to it today, but you'll... you. If you remember just what was read um, by our brother Mark, the end of this particular um, passage, the end of this section, starts with them going out, the Arioch, the ruler of the guard, or the the head of the guard, going out to kill all these uh, households, right? And so it is a very real and present threat from Nebuchadnezzar. And it even extends to Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It extends to all of them that the judgment would be. And if you remember... This group of men, the young Judean men who were sent in exile from Babylon when they were captured, um, were sent to be trained under the Chaldeans specifically. In this case being the, not the group for the whole lot, they're not necessarily under the sorcerers and things like that, but they're under the academic part of this um, council, which is the Chaldeans. So it's going to affect everyone, And, and Nebuchadnezzar is a cruel man. He has only, at this point, been in rule for a little over a year, probably a couple of years, um, maybe three. We don't know for sure, but likely in that two to three year range. And um, it doesn't take long to see the the cruelty of Nebuchadnezzar. He's had multiple sieges. Uh, The Judean men certainly have seen it in their own town of Jerusalem. Um, So this threat is real. And the counselors would know that this threat is, is real. I think what's interesting is Nebuchadnezzar is not just looking for appeasement. If he really wanted to be pacified, if he really wanted to be able to just go lay down and go back to sleep, he would say, here's my dream, tell me, tell me what I want to hear, right? That's essentially what he'd be doing by providing it. Instead, God has worked, he has divinely intervened in Nebuchadnezzar's sleep with a dream that is so pressing that actually truth is more important than just appeasement. And Nebuchadnezzar is here looking for truth, which is why he's putting this test in front of them. What Nebuchadnezzar is looking for is a prophet. He wants someone who can speak on behalf of God. The problem is he has false prophets sitting in front of him. He's given a test that cannot be passed to a bunch of fools. In verse 6, he offers a reward. Uh, Let's look at that. Daniel 2, verse 6. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. This sounds wonderful, but this group, I imagine, don't uh, care much for this. At this point, they've been presented a test that they cannot pass. They are being asked to give an interpretation they cannot give. 
And so the idea of reward is probably not nearly as significant on their mind as the threat of the looming danger to them and their household and their loved ones and, and their own lives. And in verse 7, we go on to see uh, where it says, They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. They're grasping for air. They're grasping at straws. They've got nothing. They've been given nothing to work with, and they have no capability to know the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. They need just enough material to be able to spin it, to be able to give a general and lightly positive outlook that it's digestible for the king. It is in nobody's in Babylon's interest to have a sleepless king. It is in nobody's best interest to have a king who is upset and angry and who is uh, distressed. As we can see, the threats are real. Imagine for um, the council in particular, it is more real than anyone that all interpretations should, even if there's a moment of resistance, end with positivity. Hey, but you're a great king. You're the ruler of Babylon. You're the greatest ruler of the greatest nation in the world. It will ultimately work out for you. And so they're asking again, give us a source material. Give us something, right? I can't help but think of like horoscopes and astrology, right? The, the writings on these things are so general and vague that, oh, you know what? I'm born on, you know, I'm born on July 24th. Okay, I'm this. Hey, out of all of this that is written, this broad, very shallow depth, something appeals to my own perception of myself, probably a good thing. Like, yeah, that is about me. There must be something to this, right? And, and in reality, it's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. But enough is there and generally positively bent that it, it's widely adopted. I mean, there are people with tattoos of, of their astrology signs and take real significance in it because a little bit of truth is there or something, something appetizing. But Nebuchadnezzar knows it's cotton candy, right? It feels like substance in the hand. The moment you put it in your mouth, it dissolves and it's nothing. It's nothing. It's sweetness for a moment and it's not real. And the Chaldeans have probably, this whole council have probably over and over again offered these appeasing statements. And um, I doubt Nebuchadnezzar is, is the kind of brilliant um, servant leader who has surrounded himself with people who challenge his authority and who really present a wise and a multitude of counselors. No, he knows he's put himself in front of himself a bunch of parrots who will tell him what he wants to hear. So look with me again now at verse 8 and 9 in chapter 2. We see the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupting words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall show you uh, then that uh, I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is standing firm. He's having none of it. He has too much experience with this lot. And again, I think that the reason this is different, and we'll see the Chaldeans claim that no one's ever asked of anything like this before of men. I think the reason this is different is because it is a spiritual dream. This is unrestfulness. That is the conscience. This is, the, this is a deeper pricking of this man's spirit than he is comfortable with. It is God's intervention. And we see it's part of his sovereign plan and his divine plan for redemptive, uh, throughout redemptive history. 
But Nebuchadnezzar knows the foolishness of the past. He's prepared to conduct his action um, that we see he ends up doing because these men cannot offer the interpretation. All right, we're going to spend the rest of our time here looking through three theologies through verses 10 and 11. So read with me the Chaldeans' response. And what I would say is, as you go into it, listen for what is um, the truth of all great liars. There is a hint of truth in what is said, but it's ultimately foolishness. Look, listen for the hints of truth. We'll go through it. All, there's going to be three theologies revealed through these two verses here in verse 10 and 11. So we have this drama unfolding. Everything's building. They're saying, please just give me something. Give me a couple words for me to give you an interpretation and appease your anger. And what do we see in verses 10 and 11? The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. First thing I think of is like, well, you're right. No one's asked this with threat of death because otherwise you would all be dead. If, if the king had done this before, you wouldn't be able to do this and it would have meant death. But there's a lot more going on here. And you see, sure, men cannot do these things on earth, but their reasoning and logic is flawed. So if you look on the back of your bulletin, um, I attempted to put our, our, put our three points we're going to work through here. It's going to be a little bit different format than maybe um, I've done in the past, but we're going to look at three different theologies being revealed here in Daniel 2, 10, and 11. And with each theology, we're going to see the application immediately following. So first, we're going to look at the theology of the council and the appropriate application for us today. We're going to look at theology of Nebuchadnezzar and the application, and then the theology of Judah, the Judeans' theology and the application for us today. Uh, with the, starting with the theology of the council, the pagan theology of this council is all based on one thing, and that is location, location, location. Pagan theology is all about keep the God, lowercase g, keep the God here at home. Make sure they don't go anywhere else to any other regions. Make sure they're not enticed to go off and do something else. We need to keep them here for when we need to call on them to use their power for our good or for our benefit. So that everything that is done is an attempt to appease or entice the spirit, wicked spiritual being that is behind the image that is their God to stay here in, in a geographical area. And these men in particular, right, the priests, the, the most holy men of this pagan theology, is their job to do any kind of sacrifice and ritual, any type of thing necessary to draw and hold on for dear life to the spiritual force being in, in their land. If you remember back to when our brother Nick taught us on Laban and his household, when, um, when Rachel leaves and she takes the, she takes the uh, images, the different objects that were the god, gods of Laban, and she puts it under her saddle and she says, hey, it's my time of the month, you know, I'm unclean, don't, don't remove me from here, and she sneaks it out. Laban is furious because the threat to him is real that if you take geographically my god away, I have no power. And we see this, um, we actually see this in archaeology a lot. Um, archaeology, a benefit of it is we've gotten to see, we can see glimpses of truth through the, the, um, the poor mirroring 
of pagan theology. We can see glimpses of truth, but the main benefit we, we see is just the foolishness of pagan theology, which is ritual after ritual that are done to entice them. And if you think of like the epics of Gilgamesh and some of these things that have now been put into common literature, um, these things are their, their theologies for these pagan religions on maintaining geographical location. Please stay here, Gilgamesh. Please stay here, divine being. And, um, and what's the best way to keep an evil spirit that you believe is this God here? How do you, how do you if you're the one offering rituals, keep them here? Sin. Death, chaos, decreation. It's the currency of the adversary. And that's what these men offer to entice the God to say. And we see this working out. If you turn with me to 1 Kings 18, we're going to see an example of this. So I, I know I appeal to archaeology on a regular basis, and a big reason um, for that is because this Babylonian era, after the Battle of Carchemish, the, the, um, this Babylonian era is a treasure trove of archaeology. There's a lot to be learned. But what we know is, is most true and knowledgeable is that of our own scriptures. And so I want us to turn to 1 Kings 18. We're going to be uh, looking, um, starting at verses 24. We'll eventually make our way through 29. But we're going to see this theology worked out, this pagan theology. And if you remember, at this point um, in 1 Kings, Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal. He is, he is challenging to this test. Hey, let's do a competition. Whoever's God comes down with holy fire, that's the real God, okay? And you have your many hundreds of prophets of Baal, uh, priests of Baal, and I am just, I am just me. I am few. Um, but let's have this competition and, and see if it works out for, for one of our gods, and we'll, we'll go from there. So turn with me. If 1 Kings 18, look at verses 24 through 26. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Then they took the bowl, they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, I believe it's talking about limped there because of, of self-mutilation that they're going to talk about here in this worship, in this sacrificial worship, um, or, the, or this um, ritualistic um, self-sacrifice or perceived self-sacrifice. But what you see here is this, these men are calling out. And Elijah is in an area that he knows the theology of these Baal worshippers. And look at Elijah's response. He's going to expose their theology in his response. What Elijah does when they do not successfully call Baal to bring down holy fire is he mocks them. And look at how he mocks them in the very next verse, in verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Elijah is taunting them because their theology is that we got to keep God here, we got to keep him pleased, but we got to be able to wake him up when we need him, and we need him to be present when we call upon him. And in verse 18, or 28 and 29, right after that, we see 
And they cried out and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Back in Daniel 2, this theology is there for these Babylonians. This theology is absolutely there working its way out through these men. Because what do we see their concern being? They say this is being asked of, this is something that gods must do, who do not dwell with flesh. They know they have a zero ability to call this God in, to work with them in flesh, and to give them the power needed. They don't have a God that dwells with flesh. But I would say if you see the pattern, you you may be seeing the pattern that's working through here. This whole ritualistic worship, this pagan theology that's being worked out through these men, It's all about manipulation. It's all about manipulation. What can I do to make my God do what I need my God to do for me when I need it at the right time? What do I need to do? Do I need to harm myself? Do we need to sacrifice children, cannibalism, all these horrible things to entice this evil, wicked spirit to stay and provide power? It's all manipulation. If I rub the lamp just the right way, the genie will come out and do what I need it to do. So let's consider what is the application for us in the way in which these men are approaching this. Their entire theology is based on location of God. They do not have a true understanding of an omnipresent God. We have a God who is everywhere. We have a God who created all things and all things are sustained by him. We do not have an aloof and capricious God who comes and goes. We have a God who is everywhere at all times. And beyond that, we have a Christ. We have an Emmanuel. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If this doesn't get you in the Christmas mood for the month of December, I don't know what would. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 20 through 25. Let's see what God has to say about our God. Let's see what Christ is said of Christ here. Starting in verse 20, we're going to read through 25. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Up to this point, this is what from what they're quoting the prophet Isaiah. But then we get this additional teaching, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We have a God whose name literally means God with us. We have a present and real God who dwells with us in flesh. And what I would say is, is although we are here today beyond the, the crucifixion, resurrection, beyond all of this, God being with us, they had a reason they should have known better. God has been there from the beginning. God has been there since he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God's presence has been here with us. God has manifested himself and his presence to us in different various ways and various forms throughout time. But it has always been there. 
whether it was Adam and Eve in the garden, the floating temple of the ark, the ark of the covenant, the tabernacle, the temple itself, there are divinely chosen, God-ordained places for his presence to be approached with flesh. And praise the Lord, we're on the other side of the ascension. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have become temples ourselves. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is here. So do not find, do not let yourselves be caught up in the theology of the Chaldeans. You might think, hey, this Baal worship, that's not something I do. That's not something I think of. But I imagine you've thought before, God is not close. God is far. God's not here. I'm not feeling it. Right? That is, that is the same theology. My God is only real if he's here and I feel him, if I feel his power. We have an Emmanuel. We have a God with us. We have Christ. We have God with us. Turn with me to John 1, 1 through 14. All right. This is a long passage here, but listen to it. Just hear the language. The language, if you talk to Rob Roy, he'd, I know he'd be saying right behind my ear, temple language, temple language. If you, as you listen through this, think of when the word temple, think of God's presence with man, God's presence with man, how we can come uh, and be in the presence of God. And when we listen to, to this very familiar passage, John 1, 1 through 14, think about how God dwells with man and has from the beginning of time and continues, and one day we will have the ultimate manifestation in this forever kingdom with Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who coming in the world, coming into the world, excuse me, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was already here. It was already made through him, but we didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How anti-Chaldean is that? He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is the fa at the Father's side. He has made him known. God does not change. God does not change. God has been present. He is upholding everything. Everything is being upheld by God. God is absolutely dwelling in flesh. For those who understand it and who God has given grace upon grace to see it, God is absolutely dwelling with flesh. Do not let yourself get caught up in the theology of the Chaldeans and this wicked council. 
All right, we're on to point two here, the theology of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is here in the court. He has a certain background of theology, just like these men. But I would say, just like many of us, it's one thing to have those that are priests and are preachers that are saying things, and it's another to have your own heart revealed in your own theology. And we see the bits of truth. We see hints of it in, in the ultimately what is lies. But think about what Nebuchadnezzar is searching for. He is searching for truth. He desires truth. He desires a prophet. The Chaldeans say, we can't do what only the divine can do. Nebuchadnezzar is searching for a prophet. And what does he do? He threatens to destroy the false prophets. This might feel a bit right. There is a sense to it that is in the right way and by the right means of following God's law. That is what is to be done. You are to test the prophets um, and to deal with them. But Nebuchadnezzar's theology is, is pretty clear here. And we'll see it in future sermons in his reaction to what is the true teaching from God um, through uh, his prophet Daniel. But what Nebuchadnezzar's theology is, what have you done for me lately? I will worship the God. I will bless the prophet. I will reward the prophet and his God for the one who does the thing for me that I need it to do. This is the theology of Nebuchadnezzar. And as he approaches, um, as he approaches uh, this interaction with the Chaldeans and the way he ends up dealing with these false prophets um, is a way that, that, to a certain extent, is the way God lines out in Scripture. And we're going to see here in a moment in Deuteronomy how God tells us to, to think about prophets and those who claim to be prophets like these men are. Um, but in, but um, I would encourage you to think not so nobly of Nebuchadnezzar in this. His theology is clear here in that it is whatever serves him. And yet, God, even through the wickedness of man, can use the wickedness of men to continue his redemptive history, to continue his sovereign plan. Think of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. And this king's heart is absolutely a stream getting turned by God from the beginning of his dream through how he's seeking to go about um, understanding his dream. Uh, turn with me. We're going to spend some time here um, in Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. We're going to look at chapter 13. <clears throat> and we're going to look at thir chapter 13, then we're going to jump to chapter 18, and then eventually to Jeremiah. But what I encourage you as we make our way through this is hear what God is telling Moses and what God is telling us through the giving of the law, how to, how to understand who are claiming to be prophets, how to interact with those that are false prophets, how to understand whether or not someone is a true prophet or not. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's our Shema right there. You shall walk away, uh, you shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. 
But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Very clear. What is the first sign of a false prophet? It's not even can the, do the miracles work or do they not? We've seen the magicians in, in the Egyptian court try to recreate the um, decreation of the blood and water and um, recreate things that on the surface seems like, yes, they can do it too. But if they tell you to worship a God other than Yahweh, they are a false prophet and they are to be killed. Now turn over to Deuteronomy 18. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22. This is, this is, at this time, you have, uh, you have right, uh, at the time of the Exodus, an 80-year-old Moses uh, who is, people are concerned about the age of Moses and are we going to have another prophet? And this is what God says to Moses when Moses takes the petition or the concern of uh, his, God's people to Yahweh. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God or see the great, this great fire any more, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, that is Moses, uh, they are right in the way that they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Excuse me. And whoever will speak, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I shall, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of their other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you shall say in your heart, how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? Uh, excuse me. How how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Again, you should think that in this court, what God is doing, God is revealing these men are false prophets. They are not to be feared. And Nebuchadnezzar does not fear them. Instead, they fear Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look, um, lastly, um, in, in for this particular theology, turn with me to Jeremiah 23. We're going to look at one more Old Testament passage here as to the dealing of prophets. These men are not new. They may be the best at their craft in twisting words and manipulating Nebuchadnezzar or attempting to manipulate divine evil spirits, but all of their tactics are the same tactics the adversary has been pulling since day one. And we'll see here that even though it's the book of Jeremiah and it's not, Jeremiah is not in Nebuchadnezzar's court right now, we have instead teaching that is absolutely applicable um, to what these prophets are trying to do in this moment when they try to twist the words or say a pleasant thing to appease the anger of Nebuchadnezzar. Look with me at Jeremiah 23. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of Yahweh. They say continually, 
to those who despise the word of Yahweh. It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. This is the very thing these men are trying to do. Nebuchadnezzar has put his false prophets to the test, and they will fail. God is putting them to the test, and they will fail. And God will prove himself through his prophet, Daniel, and through his own interpretation. But for our own application here, as we think through false prophets and what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here and trying to seek what he wants to hear ultimately, but through someone who actually has the power to tell him what he wants to hear, let's look at what, what is the application for us today? Well, the world is full of false prophets. We're surrounded by it. it Maybe what comes to mind is the Mormon church, the Pope, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn. But I exhort you, look inwards. I would suggest that we have more often been our own false prophet. The Chaldeans are asking the king for a source material to go after and spin to give them what they can do to appease the king. How do you approach your scripture? How often have we gone to the word of God with something in mind, looking for a source material to give us the appeasement that we want? We have been the prophets looking for the interpretation we want that is pleasing to us that Jeremiah warns of. The reason we preach exegetically at this church, right? There's a time and a place for topical, but the reason we try to work our way through scripture is because it is a dangerous game to go looking to scripture to say, hey, this is what I want to learn. Now let's go to scripture. You are going to find what you're looking for. You're going to find it. But the problem is it's going to be very likely a bunch of confirmation bias. You went and looked and found just the right words, the little bit of a of, of verse or part of verse, or maybe even a whole passage that, you know what, with, with going in for looking for this, I found it. And I can justify what it is I want. I think more often than we would like to admit, we are our own false prophets. We are giving ourselves false teaching. And we need to instead approach scripture in a way, the best we can, we have, there are presuppositions and they are good that God is holy, that this is God's word. There are good things, the things that we have been taught, right? These are good things and should affect our relationship with God and his holy word. But if you approach God's word thinking, I'm looking for this today, you're going to find it and you perhaps will lead yourself into a very dangerous teaching. Instead, we should approach this word as we will eventually see Daniel approaches God. God, God's interpretation or God's dream, the dream is given to us. The interpretation is given to us. Not, God, let me bring to you my dream and I'm going to look in scripture for the interpretation I want. Instead, Daniel starts off, we're going to get to see it. It is beautiful. It is humble. And it is the approach to God. He says, God, give us your, give me this dream, please. Tell me the dream. Okay. He knows it is God's to give and also give me the interpretation. God has given us his dream in his word. God has given us the dream, right? In this analogy here, we know what it is that God wants us to know in his word, but we should also seek it not just for the knowledge, but also for the interpretation. So I encourage you, approach scripture carefully, but consistently looking for God to interpret his own word. Lastly, let's look at the theology of Judah. So you may think... uh, I've, through this whole episode, now through two sermons in a row, we've yet to actually have um, a servant of God. We have yet to have a Judean. We've yet to have um, someone from God's people involved in this episode. 
And yet, I think we can understand the theology of Judah in this moment in time, whether they're in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar or not, and they're not. Um, but um, we can understand their, their perspective. They're a people in exile. They are in a place of pagan worship in a, away from the promised land. Think about how this might feel to them, right? Daniel 1 started off with the sacking of the temple, taking of the treasures of God's holy temple that they spent so much time, so much effort. Their people have come out of exile before in, in Egypt to be able to worship at that temple. And here it is, it's been plundered and they've been sent into exile. These people throughout history, right? Our people, us as Christians throughout history have had some kind of access and presence of God given to us, a way to interact with God. And here they are thinking much like the Chaldeans, the geography is too great. I'm out of the promised land. The temple is not there for me to go in and be near the Holy of Holies, right? For me to go to the priest and give my sacrifice and he can be just right through that, that curtain. He can, he can put before God what I need. I'm too far away. I'm in exile. And we've seen throughout, um, throughout um, the, the behavior of the Israelites in all of this that they were already not seeking this temple. This is judgment for the behavior they had already done. They had hoard after other gods. But now in this moment, even those that are, are the remnant and faithful are likely discouraged and being, feel far away. Turn with me to Psalm 79. We're going to look at two psalms here. They're exilic psalms. These are psalms written while in exile and can give us a glimpse into the heart, mind, and theology of these people. And remember, um, this, is, this is holy scripture. This is, even though it's a, uh, so the psalm is being written as a speaking to God. Um, and you'll see this here. And I would encourage you, if you have more time, we're only going to be able to look at the first seven verses, but I encourage you to go back and look through the whole thing, which is they, they speak to God, but then we see the, the truth said usually at the end of the psalm, right? We see that truth of, but his steadfast love endures forever and the reliance on God. But listen to the emotional plight of Judeans in exile. Psalm 79, 1 through, through um, 7. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Yahweh, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his inhabitation. If you go on, they end up relying, trusting on what is true and has been said before them and is true afterwards, which is God is steadfast and faithful. But you can hear the struggle of the psalmist here. Turn with me uh, a few pages later, um, Psalm 137. This is often considered one of the, one of the darker, darkest psalms, one of the darkest portions of scripture, but um, it is a beautiful lament and we see here that the, um, the Judeans uh, are in exile. They're, they're by the waters in Babylon, writing of this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing of us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You can hear the distance, this geography. There is a theology of geography, and there is, is truth to it in that there was a promised land. But no land restrains our God. Our God is present. These Judeans' theology is going to be mixed. We have wicked kings who probably aren't putting out the best curriculum for their, their, their kingdom. They're worshipers of false gods, following in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And what we also probably have is a rem- we have a remnant. We know we have that. There are faithful Judeans that are looking forward to the Messiah, that are faithful, and we will get to one day be able to experience um, holy worship in that forever kingdom with. But in this mixture, one thing is likely felt, which is I am far away from my promised land, and so I'm far away from my God. And that just is not true. As we think about our application today, you may wonder if God is close to you. You may think, I don't really feel God right now. I don't feel close. I don't feel like doing the things that Christian people are supposed to do. And what I would like to encourage you and challenge you by saying is how you feel about God and his presence is irrelevant to his presence and nature. How you feel about God is irrelevant to his presence and nature. God is the same no matter how you feel about him. No matter how you feel about him. I imagine many of you think back to when the fire was more ablaze. Perhaps it was when you first converted, maybe you were at a camp, something else, and you think back to the time when um, every song, every Christian song rocked you emotionally. It was the deepest thing you'd heard. And every time you prayed, it felt like Christ was in the corner with you when you were praying. He's close. He's right there. The Holy Spirit is playing telephone from me to Christ and Christ to God. It's right there. I can feel it. And every time you opened up your Bible and read devotions, it felt like, hey, this is new. I'm learning new. This is, this is wonderful. Whoa, this, how has my family not heard this? How have others not heard this? You feel this fire and this zeal. And when you come to church and you hear the preaching of God's word, you're like, this man is speaking from God. Whoa, the word is being opened up for me. My life has changed. I'm going to behave different now, more like Christ as a result of this preaching. But that feels like a faded, distant past. Maybe a time in which, especially we're Reformed Baptists, we're Stoic, we're Bible studiers. That was a time when we were, you know, young in our faith. We didn't know yet how mature to be. Or maybe that was a time we, we regret and we're, we wish we were back in. We wish we felt, felt that connection. Your feelings about God are irrelevant to the presence and nature of God. Guess what? God is sustaining your heartbeat this very moment, whether you feel him there or not. God is sustaining your heartbeat. When you pray, Christ is there interceding at the right hand of the Father. Whether your prayer feels like a bunch of words and nonsense or not, Christ is there interceding at the right hand. When you do what is obedient, you show up to church. Maybe it's even just because you think, oh no, we're a small church. They're going to know if I'm not here. So that's why I'm going to be there so I don't get a text from someone. Even when you're obedient, 
It is the Holy Spirit that allows you to be obedient. We trudge towards wickedness. It is the Holy Spirit restraining you from sin. Whether you feel good about God, whether you feel close, whether you feel on fire and zealous or not, Christ is interceding. God is sustaining. The Holy Spirit is changing us to become more like Christ. Now, if you're not feeling the fire, or if you're not a believer, if you're like, I've never felt that fire, I'm here, I've listened to this stuff, I do not have that personal relationship that you're talking about, I've got for you a perfect three-step program that's guaranteed to work. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to do. One, you pray. Okay, whether it's the fire is gone or whether you have not believed in God, pray. Pray, pray. Go to God. Ask that God would remove the sin that is keeping you from feeling the presence of God or being connected to the presence of God because it is your sin that is restraining you. It is your sin that is the problem here. It is not God and his closeness and giving you the warm fuzzies. Pray that God would remove that sin. Repent. Step two, open your word. Open the word of God. Open scripture. Start your day by consuming the word of God. End your day by consuming the word of God. Okay? This is some basic stuff, but it is basic and it is truthful. If you pray and start your day and end your day with scripture, you will be in a good spot. Okay? God tells us, seek and you will find. Seek him. Seek him in prayer and seek him in your scripture. Step three, do it again. Pray, read, pray, read, pray, read. Do it again and again and again and again. Meditate on his word. It should be an outcropping, a flowing. It should be changing you. Even when when you're saying, I don't want to be here in this chair in the morning. I need to leave for work. And yet I'm going to spend five minutes, 15 minutes, an hour reading this scripture that I've read over and over. I went to a Christian school. This isn't new. Do it again. Read it again. It doesn't matter how you feel about God. God is there. We have been given God. We have been given the dream. We do not have to guess at it. We don't have to guess at the interpretation either. Pray to God. He is a present God who dwells with flesh. Seek him and you will find him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you do dwell with flesh. You are our Emmanuel. You have given us our Emmanuel. You have been here from the beginning. You are in all things. You are an omnipresent God. And yet you gave us a special blessing in the physical human form of God. In the Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. It is a God we do not deserve. It is a God who sacrificed himself on the cross so that we can have a personal relationship with an omnipresent God who dwells with us with his spirit in us every day, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you will cause us to be faithful in our study of your word, that we go to you for the dream, we go to you for the interpretation, Lord, and that we leave it to you, regardless of if it's appeasement or if it is the clear pointing out of our our guilty standing and our shamefulness needs to be addressed. Lord, we thank you for this day. May you be glorified. Amen.